Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you for who you are. God, thank you for each and every single person that could be here tonight. God, I pray that you will use me, um, that you will speak to each and every single person here, whether it's to remind them of something that you've taught them before, or maybe they'll learn something new. I just pray you'll use me for your honor and your glory. In your name, amen. First world problems. A small inconveniencing frustration that people in the developed world experience and complain about. Some of my favorites that I looked up are, my turn wasn't sharp enough to turn off my car blinker. I had too much food for lunch, and now I'm tired. There's not enough tissues left in the box to weigh down the box when I pull out a tissue. I had to retie my left shoe, and now it feels tighter than my right shoe. My book's battery died. Took me a second to get that one, but eventually I did. Um, And I can't skip commercials on live TV. And the last one, which I'm sure we have all done, oh no, the Wi-Fi is out. (laughs) First world problems, yes, are very, very humorous, but it makes me think about how quick I am to whine or complain at the smallest little thing. And I'm sure it's not just me, but but many of us here. We're so quick to complain when the Wi-Fi is out that when there's a real problem that comes along, a real trial, a real struggle, a real difficulty, our alarms go to DEFCON 5, we run in circles, scream and shout, and we don't respond the way we are commanded to biblically. Now, Before I I start, I want to say that the trials and suffering mentioned here does not include consequences from sin. If you steal a candy bar and are thrown in the slammer, that's on you. Totally different. Now, this morning, when I saw the title to Pastor Joe's sermon, The Secret to Perseverance Through Persecution, at first I thought, oh no, that sounds maybe a little similar to mine. And I kind of panicked a little, and I thought, should I feel awkward? Is this like the preaching equivalent to wearing the same shirt as your best friend at a party? Uh, So I was a little nervous at first, but then I quickly realized, no, this is perfect. And as he was preaching, I thought, this is a great segue into what I'm going to be talking to tonight. So it's actually almost like a tag team. And and this morning, Pastor Joe shared the, the secret to perseverance and persecution to fear God and walk right with him. Having that fear and that perspective will help us to have the right response when persecution, and in our case this evening, suffering hits. There's a man in the Bible who handled and responded to a trial greater than I ever could, and this man is Job. The book of Job and the character of Job is, is one of my favorites in the entire Bible. He's an incredible, incredible man. And just to provide some context to, to Job, it takes place in the Old Testament, the first part in the Bible. Scholars aren't quite sure who wrote the book of Job because it's not specifically stated in the book. But many believe it was either Moses, Solomon, Job himself, or his friend Elihu if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, The events of this book, Job, are thought to take place before the exodus of the Israelites for various reasons, one being that the the head of the household in this book, Job, offered the sacrifices, where normally if it was around the time of the exodus, the priest would have done it. 
And then, lastly, the, it's not specifically stated where the land of Uz is, but it's believed to be in northern Arabia. So thank you for all the scholars who spend hours and hours studying these things. So if you could please turn to Job 1 with me, and I will read it. So, Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabins fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. And worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, which might seem a little weird. Um, but I love this chapter. Job fascinates me, and his reputation really challenges me. In the very first verse, he's described as godly. Right there in the first verse, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He's described as, as being honest, obedient, and having that proper fear of God that Pastor Joe talked about this morning. Job wasn't literally perfect, but he was devoted to his walk with God. And right there, the description of Job in chapter 1, man, that, that's how I would want to be described. That's what I would want inscribed on my tombstone, right there in chapter 1. I mean, Job is such a godly man. And not only that, but after all his children, livestock, and wealth are numbered, he is called the greatest man in the East. Right there in verse 3. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So he was a great godly man, and other people around him could see that. And on top of all of this, I think it's obvious that he cared for his children. In the second half of verse 5, it says and talks about how he offered sacrifices for his children. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he offered sacrifices and offerings for his children in case they had sinned, and he would do this regularly. Job took his walk with God seriously, and I think he took his children's walk with God seriously. Job was consistent, he was disciplined, and devoted. And the first part of chapter 1 sets up who Job is, his character, all that he has, and it's important because it shows that the pain and experiences that that Job goes through later in the book is not because of of wrongdoing or, or because of a character flaw. So, so this first part of chapter 1 is very important. And then in verse 6, the setting completely changes and switches to the kingdom of heaven. So the angels are before God and Satan appears. And out of this whole exchange between Satan and God, the thing that's always stuck out to me the most was verse 8. Where it says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, Satan didn't ask about Job. God brought up Job. It seems like God was impressed, in a way, bragging about his servant. I mean, wow. With that reference, Job could get any job he wanted on that resume. I mean, have God created the universe say that about you? That's incredible. And when I read that verse, I think, man, how how would God describe me? I'm a believer, so I, I am his child. I'm righteous in his eyes. But is he pleased with me the way he is with Job? Am I as close with God as Job is? That's incredible that God would just bring up Job like that and and just describe Job the way he did. Well, God brings up Job and how righteous he is, and Satan basically says, well, of course he turns away from evil. Of course he follows you. You protect him. You've blessed him. But I bet you, if you took away everything that he had, he'd curse you to your face. So there's Satan uh, accusing Job's devotion. And what does God do? God allows Satan to do what he wants to do with Job. 
as long as he doesn't kill him. And we see that in verse 12 where he says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hands. So you can do anything but kill Job. So Satan accused that Job's devotion was based on his situation and God allowed Satan to test Job. And you could preach and read and write books about this whole heaven scene. It's, it's fascinating, but it shows that God is in control in every instance and situation. Satan couldn't just go out without God's permission and do that. God is in control. Nothing happens outside of his control or knowledge. But why did God allow Satan to do this? We'll get to that in just a little bit. And verses 14 through 19 is, is an absolutely heartbreaking passage just to see one after another after another, just Job losing everything that he loved, everything that he cared for, everything that he worked for. He lost everything in one day. He lost his, his animals, his wealth, his, his children. All of these things he lost. And what was Job's response? In verse 21, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, yes, Job, he, he grieved and he mourned. He tore his clothes. He shaved his head, which is what they would do in the Old Testament. But he praised God when he lost everything that he had, everything that he cared for. He praised God. And that's, that's incredible. Job realized that God was in control of all of this. Then in chapter 2 of Job, we see a very similar exchange between Satan and God. God brings up Job once again, and we see in verse 3 that he says he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil, and God says he still holds fast to his integrity. We, we see here that Job still held fast in his godliness even through this horrible, difficult, heartbreaking trial. And we see that Job did nothing to deserve the, the suffering. And after the second part of verse 3, God is saying he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And it's important to note that God was not manipulated by Satan. That's not possible. God is in control. Satan was the one who accused Job, but God still had a reason for the suffering that occurred. And I believe God was confident in his servant Job. And not too long after this, in the beginning of chapter 2, Job is afflicted with boils and sores over his skin, which is just, he lost everything he had. And then he's afflicted with these boils and sores. And what is his response? In verse 10, he's talking to his wife, and he says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Again, what Job is doing is he's acknowledging that God is in control in the good and in the bad. He did not curse or blame God, even after everything that happened. And I read that, and I can't get over that. He did what the following verses say to do. Romans 5.3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's, it's incredible that Job could, could praise and rejoice in God even through all of this. And I look at myself and think, the Wi-Fi goes out and I start whining and complaining. What would I do if I was in Job's position? We are commanded to, to praise God and express how great he is. We rejoice in the Lord because he has saved you and someday there will be glorification. You can be with God in heaven someday forever. God is the almighty creator. He created the galaxies. He created the stars, the planets, the skies, the mountains. He created you and me. He deserves and is worthy of our praise. If you have believed in Jesus, how could you not praise God? You are saved from eternal damnation. Everything here on earth is far less worse than what you could be facing eternally if it wasn't for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Randy Alcorn said this, The world is the closest to heaven unbelievers will ever know, and the closest to hell God's children will ever know. We have a great God. We're blessed. Suffering can be extremely painful, life-altering, heartbreaking. Suffering is awful. But if you have believed in Jesus, you have the Comforter with you. You have the Prince of Peace who will give you a peace beyond all understanding. We are commanded to rejoice in our suffering, pain, and difficulties and trust that God is in control because he is. And this is exactly what Job did, even though he was afflicted with all of these different things. But to get to the point before, why did Job go through all this suffering? If God is in control, then why did this happen? Seems kind of cruel, doesn't it? Well, there's two passages of Scripture, and we could talk about this for a very long time, but there's two passages of Scripture that give us a better understanding. Psalm 1830, in the first part of this verse, it says, This God, His way is perfect. God's ways are perfect, far beyond our own understanding. That means God does no wrong in anything He does, and that He is perfectly wise. In Job chapters 38 to 41, they're some of my favorite chapters. They're, they're poetic in the imagery. It's, it's amazing. But in these chapters, we see how much greater and how much more knowledgeable God is than us. Compared to God, we know nothing. So God will act and allow difficult things to come our way, and we might not always know why. That's okay, because God does. But we can rest knowing that God is in control and knows far better, far more than we do, even though sometimes we act like we know more than God. And then there's Romans 8.28, and I, I love this verse. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, if you are a child of God, all things, good and bad, happen to bring God glory, and it happens for your better. But wait a minute, what happened to Job? Was that really for his better? I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a pleasant way to spend a day, losing everything that you have. But you see, our idea of good is not always what's best for us. Suffering is not good, but God can use it for that. God can use it for our better. 
Your good might be a loved one dying, so someone comes to know Christ at the funeral. Your good might be struggling financially, so you learn to have a greater trust in God. Your good might be losing your job, so you are humbled before God and learn dependence on Him. Your good might not always be easy. It can be difficult and painful. But what was Job's good? In the end, he learned about God's sovereignty and wisdom. He grew even closer to God. At the end, he was blessed abundantly. And to this day, countless people have been encouraged and challenged by what he went through. What Satan meant to use for evil, God used for better. His glory and Job's good. We are commanded to praise God in our suffering and trust that he has a reason. We need to trust in who he is. Charles Spurgeon said this, and this is one of my favorite quotes. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I'm sure many people thought when they saw the sermon title, kiss the wave. What on earth? Now it makes a little bit more sense. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Dave Furman on DesiringGod.org wrote an article on this quote. He says, Spurgeon's advice is key to suffering well. Our trials are God's means of drawing us to himself, the rock of ages. The wave is a vehicle transporting us to the very doorstep of God Almighty. It is not flippant advice from the Prince of Preachers. He's not pretending that suffering is easy and we should simply try harder to persevere. Spurgeon is not saying that pain, trials, and death are good things. Dave goes on to say, Kissing the wave means we stop flailing our arms in panic and embrace the God who has sovereignly designed our circumstances for our good and his glory. We must praise God and be thankful in the sufferings that throw us into the arms of our loving creator. And that could be so difficult at times. Take, for instance, Christian music stars Hilary Scott's story behind her song, Thy Will Be Done. We were on tour all last summer, and my daughter is almost three and my husband and I had really started talking through extending our family um, having another baby and so we um, started trying last summer and I got pregnant in July the first appointment we had there was a flutter of a heartbeat and my doctor said come back in a week and then we'll know like next week by then we'll know if this is if this baby you know is healthy or not desperate of a place like I mean I literally would get on my knees to try to pray and it was almost like my I couldn't I lost the ability to speak and all I could really say was that will be done and then in different you know my day-to-day like reading the Bible or my devotionals like the morning of my next appointment it was on those those verses the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and it was in that moment I felt God go and speak to my heart like this isn't going to end how you want it to but my plans are for you you know thy will be done there's just um a lot of a lot of just that repetition of that those verses hearing 
those, you know, hearing someone talk about those verses, reading those verses, it just kind of kept coming up, not to mention just what I was praying continually for that week leading up to that next appointment. In the midst of a huge, amazing summer tour, you know, and what we thought was going to be, you know, another baby to bring home, just wasn't, that wasn't the plan. I know you I think that, you know, is one of the things that has been such a huge lesson for me to learn in writing this song, sharing this story, is that I have already seen so much good and so much positive come from what I went through. Obviously, it is not the end to the story that I wanted about this chapter in our life, but the beauty that has risen from the ashes and the, and the beauty that has come in a form that I wasn't expecting it to, in the form of this song, in the form of stories and connections with fans and with people all over the world already, um, that has just been the biggest blessing and I will forever be grateful for every step of this journey because of that. Even in one of the worst things that could happen, losing a child, she was able to write a song praising God who he was who he is. She learned to kiss the wave and run into the embrace of her Savior. We are called to rejoice in the Lord and trust in him even in the most heart-wrecking, soul-wrenching of times. And one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament gives us two people who did just that. Uh, please turn to Acts 16. And I know Pastor Joe is going through Acts, so I don't want to steal any of his thunder. Um, so, Sorry. But I kind of just figured it fit, it fit really well, so hopefully I don't ruin anything. Um, just to give some quick context in a uh, summary, in the beginning of Acts 16, we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are going around preaching and, and teaching the Word of God. In verse 5 of chapter 16 of Acts, it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So people were coming to know Christ and they started to travel around, and the Holy Spirit prevents them to going into two areas. And that's really interesting to think about, that the Holy Spirit would prevent someone from going to share the gospel. But it shows that God is in control, even in the beginning of this chapter. It's, it's interesting to think about. So I'm sure that was discouraging for them, but in verse 9, it says... And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul had this, this clear vision that God wanted them to go to Macedonia. So they got up and they left to go to Macedonia. They went to a city called Philippi. They, they preached, they teach. Some people came to know Christ. God was working. And then there was a slave girl. The slave girl was possessed by an evil spirit. She was telling fortunes. Her owners were making a profit off of her. Well, long story short, in verse 18, we see Paul says to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Well, when her owners caught wind of what happened, they became furious. 
they just lost a prophet. So Paul and Silas, they were beaten with rods, they were tortured, and they were thrown in this, this deep, dark prison. And I can't imagine, uh, again, what it would feel like to be in their place. I mean, how confusing must that have been? God prevents them from sharing the gospel in one place, takes them to this place with a clear vision. People come to know Christ. God is clearly working. And then, boom, they're thrown in prison for doing something that they're supposed to do. That doesn't quite make sense. And maybe they were confused. I'm sure they were scared. The Bible doesn't say, maybe not, but I can't imagine what it would be like. And what was their response after being tortured and beaten with rods and and probably being scared, not knowing what was happening, not not sure what was going to happen after this? In verse 25 of Acts 16, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So in the midst of of all this suffering and, and this torture and this persecution, probably fear and uncertainty and confusion. They are being a witness and testimony to the prisoners and probably the guards near them. And that absolutely blows my way because I start whining and complaining when I'm sent to jail in Monopoly. I, I can't imagine what would happen if, if this was real life. I mean, in real life, they're beaten and tortured and thrown in prison and they're still singing to God. They're still being a witness and testimony to others around them. That, that is incredible. And that is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because what a perspective. What an attitude. Well, they, they trusted in their Lord and God worked it all out as he always does. God sent in an earthquake. Prisoners were set free, including Paul and Silas. And we see in Acts sixteen thirty one, they were able to lead a jailer to Christ. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in verse 33, it says, and we took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So God was in control. The persecution and suffering occurred so that those people could come to know Christ. And yes, this is a different kind of suffering than what happened in Job But the response was the same. They praised and rejoiced in God. They still followed God. Even what they went through was absolutely terrible. The persecution and suffering occurred so that those people can come to know Christ. Job and these missionaries praised God even when under such great suffering. When they are bodily bruised and lose everything. They had that eternal perspective. God is powerful, and glorification, being with him someday forever, will be far better, far worth any suffering here on earth. We have these spiritual giants before us who rejoiced amidst the greatest of suffering. And then I read these, and I look at myself, and I think, man, I don't praise God enough in the good, let alone in the difficult. It's easy to get comfortable in the good times, prideful even, and not praise God for his blessings, or just... Take it for granted. Wow. It's it's so easy to get comfortable. And then when the difficulties come, I'm so used to saying, woe is me, I don't even think to praise God when, when these trials and difficulties come. We, I, need to be in the habit and attitude of rejoicing in God always, no matter what. 
God is worthy, and he's deserving of it. If you have believed in Jesus, rejoice in the trials that bring you closer to God. When someone you love dies, when you lose your job, when you're struggling financially, run to God. Read his word. Recite scripture that reminds you to praise. Sing songs that that remind you of who God is. The song that we sang before the lesson, thank you for Mickey, I believe, who picked it. That was perfect. As we were singing it, I thought, wow, it's perfect. Pray for God to give you that eternal perspective, even if all you can say is, thy will be done, like that girl in that video. Everything that happens is for God's glory and your good. When the difficulties, pain, and suffering knock on your door, rest. Rest in the undeniable fact that God is perfect. God is sovereign, and he is with you through everything. Have that eternal perspective of glorification that someday you will be with him in heaven. Praise him in the good and the bad. Praise him when things don't work out the way that you expected. Even when it doesn't seem like there's something to praise him for, there is. You are saved. Praise God for who he is and thank him in advance for how he'll work it out. Even if that's all you can think to praise him for. Trust his word. Kiss the wave. But maybe you're here today and have never believed in Jesus before. In Acts 16.31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To believe means to trust who Jesus is and that he died for your sins. If you trust and are willing to turn from your sins, you are saved and you have eternal life with God. That means you have a relationship with God right now here on earth and someday you will be with him forever and then you can have that eternal perspective when that suffering comes. If you have any questions on what it means to believe, you can talk to me, Pastor Joe, Pastor Brock, or any other church leader. Remember, if you have believed, learn to kiss the wave. Rejoice and trust in God even in the worst of times. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you're sovereign. Thank you that we never have to worry that that something is happening outside of your control. Thank you that we never have to worry you don't know what you're doing. Thank you that you are wiser, that you're perfect. Thank you that you know so much more than we do. God, I pray you'll help myself. pray you'll help everyone here just to run into your embrace and they're suffering. God, I just thank you for, for who you are. In your name, amen.